because there was one image nicole that just grabbed hold of me and wouldn't let go and it was the image of my mother lying on the floor of her home dressed in a silk sari this beautiful silk sari draped around her with a rose garland placed on her body ready to go to the crematorium and i thought oh my god the only thing she gets to take with her is the sari she's wearing nothing else and the only thing she leaves behind is the love she created while she was here that was uma girish and you're listening to real talk radio with nicole antoinette episode 131 welcome to real talk radio with nicole antoinette that's me the podcast that's filled with refreshingly honest conversations about the wonderful mess of being human i'm super thrilled that you're listening in today and i want to take a minute right here at the top to share some gratitude and then to share an exciting update So first, seriously, thanks for listening to this show. Thanks for valuing honest conversations. Thanks for being open to hearing from guests whose lived experiences and opinions might be different from your own. That's hugely important. And thanks for the more tangible stuff as well. For taking a minute or two to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening from. That's such a huge help in spreading the word and in helping new people find us. So thank you so much for doing that. The show currently has 233 ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts, and I would love to get to 500 by the end of the year. So thank you for helping with that. If you have a minute to jump on and leave a rating or review. And more than anything, thanks so much for supporting and funding this show on Patreon. Together, we've built a truly community-funded podcast with no ads or corporate sponsorship, which means that we have complete freedom to come together with more honesty than ever before, which I'm really excited about. So in a few minutes I'm going to introduce you to today's wonderful guest. But first, in case you're new to this show, I'd love to just quickly explain what we do here. At the heart of it, my guests and I are committed to one simple but powerful thing, telling the truth about our lives. No one's here to sell you anything. No one's trying to get you to fix yourself or your life. I certainly don't have any magic answers, and I can't give you a miraculous 10-day six-step life hack plan for anything. Sorry, not sorry. <laughs> But as a recovering self-help junkie myself, honestly, I'm so over that approach, and my guess is that maybe you are too. Perhaps that's why you're here. So no, that's not what this show's about. Here at Real Talk Radio, I sit down with athletes, writers, entrepreneurs, parents, coaches, adventurers, artists, activists, and many others, and we dive deep into meaningful topics. We talk about work, love, money, sex, addiction, friendship, racism, body image, mental health, grief, fear, courage, change, and everything in between. This is definitely an adult podcast covering adult subjects, which means that we often use adult language, so fair warning on that, but we never shy away from telling the unfiltered truth in an open and honest way, even when that's uncomfortable. So with this mission in mind, like I said, you won't hear any ads or sponsor promotions. These honest conversations are 100% listener funded, made possible by awesome regular people like you who give $8 or more per 8 episode season. The show is and will always be free, but if you love it, if these conversations make you laugh, think or just feel less alone, I hope that you'll go to patreon.com/nicoleantoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more per 8 episode season. And now for that quick update that I said that I'm excited to share. Over on Patreon, you'll see our current funding goal. And when we reach that goal, it means that every single person who works on this show will get paid. That includes me and my sound engineer Adam Day, as well as every single guest who comes onto the show, because that's my vision, for each of our guests to be paid for the time, energy, honesty, care, and emotional labor that they bring to these conversations. 
the budget won't be huge to start with, and it'll hopefully continue to grow over time as the community grows and obviously then the funding grows with it. But higher rates will always be paid to our guests of color, as well as our queer and trans guests and others with traditionally marginalized identities who are generously spending a few hours of their time with me, a white straight cis woman, to share their lives and stories with our majority white audience. Being able to pay all of our guests has been a dream of mine for a while now, because as you've probably heard me say before, I fully believe that where we spend our money is a real-time vote for the kind of world we want to live in. And if I want to live in a world where people get paid for the work that they do, especially creative work, that means that it's up to me to create that model here at Real Talk Radio, even if it's definitely not the norm in the podcast industry. And believe me, it's not. So just know that when you help to fund this show, you're using your money as a vote for a world of honest, judgment-free conversations. You're voting to hear more stories from a wide-ranging group of people, the vast majority of whom are women. And you're voting to pay those folks for the entertainment and education that they so expertly provide. When you support this show, you're saying, loudly and proudly, that women's voices deserve to be heard, and that no topic should be off-limits due to fear or shame. It's a show by truth-tellers for truth-tellers, and as a thank you for supporting, you'll get access to over 40 hours of bonus content, as well as our monthly book club, my weekly behind-the-scenes email series where I share my real life in real time. Oh man, if you think it gets vulnerable and honest on the podcast, just wait until you start getting my emails. (laughs) Plus, you'll be the first to know when tickets go on sale for Real Talk Live events and retreats. Also, 5% of each season's profits are donated to social justice organizations, a different organization each season. Uh, Past organizations include Black Lives Matter and the Venture Out Project, so you can feel awesome about that aspect of your contribution as well. When you head over to Patreon, you'll see that there are currently three different funding levels that you can choose from, an $8 level, a $16 level, and a $25 level, each with their own unique, awesome bonuses. At the $25 level, we even do live Google Hangouts together, and oh my gosh, those are so much fun. So one more time, that's patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. And at the very end of this episode, you'll actually get to meet one of our Patreon community members who joins me for a fun little rapid fire question round. So stick around for that after the main episode for sure. And now let's dive right into today's episode. Today, you'll get to meet Uma Girish. Uma is a grief guide and award-winning author. She supports women who are grieving a loss, and whether it's the death of a loved one, the end of a relationship, the loss of a dream, or watching a parent die, she's committed to helping her clients find their best lives after loss by transforming their pain into purpose. Uma's first book, Understanding Death, 10 Ways to Inner Peace for the Grieving, was an attempt to understand the top 10 questions that she had after her mother's death in 2009. Her second book, a transformational memoir called Losing Ama, Finding Home, a memoir about love, loss, and life's detours, was published by Hay House in 2014. And her latest book, Lessons from Grace, What a Baby Taught Me About Living and Loving, will be published by Hay House later this year. Uma is also the co-founder of the International Grief Council, which offers presentations, workshops, and panel discussions about the universal language of grief. In this episode, Uma opens up about her personal grief story, sharing what she experienced when she lost her mother and what helped her to move through that painful time. She offers honest stories and practical tips for grieving, and we discuss how important it is that we allow ourselves and each other as much space as we need for our grief. Uma also shares what she's learned as a hospice volunteer and through working with seniors in a retirement community, particularly how that relates to her thoughts about finding purpose and meaning in our lives. I've been hoping to have an honest conversation about death and loss and grief and all of this for a while now, and I'm so honored that Uma came on the show to do exactly that. I hope that you appreciate hearing from her as much as I did. 
So all of that starts in just a moment. And as always, you'll be able to find all the links and resources mentioned in this episode over in the show notes at NicoleAntoinette.com slash podcast. Okay, we are rolling. Uma, welcome to the show. Thank you, Nicole. It's such an honor to be here having a soulful conversation because those are the kinds of conversations I really, really love. Well, you're in the right place because that's all I want to do. So (laughs) (laughs) it's funny. It's always interesting for me um, when I record in the afternoon, which uh, this is for me right now at the time of the recording, I have the whole morning to really think about the guest and drop into the space. And so I spent all day thinking about you and your story, and I'm really (laughs) excited to get to know you better. This is going to be so much fun. So much fun. So drop me into your real life. Tell me how you spent the first hour of your day today. Uh, I'm so glad you asked that because this morning I woke up and said, I want to change up my routine. I was kind of feeling like there was this whole repetitive theme to my morning. And I said, I don't have any client appointments today. I'm just going to claim this day, the first half. And the second half is going to be fun anyway, chatting with Nicole, which is something I love to do being an extrovert. Um, So I just took myself off. Um, I went to Panera and got myself a nice lunch. Um, Really drove around in the sunshine because it's a beautiful 85 degree day here in Chicago where I live, which is something of a blessing. So I just went for a spin. I came back home, didn't do very much, just took care of a couple of things that I had to do. But um, it's been casual. It's been fun today. That sounds great. I love the idea of realizing, hey, my morning routine feels kind of boring. I'm going to switch this up. Mm -hmm. It's so important because I have clients and, you know, the kind of work I do, um, it can be pretty heavy. So I need to take care of me. And if there's something uh, when I wake up in the morning and I feel like, you know, I just don't want to be doing this today. I don't want to write a blog post. I don't want to do another Facebook Live. I don't want to be... um, you know, doing something that I have to do within quotes, I'm just going to do something that I, I, I think will be fun for me today. So mm-hmm. I, I, for me, that's really important because of the work I do. Yeah. So when someone asks you what you do, how do you respond? How do you describe your work? What I say is I support women who are grieving a loss, whether it's the death of a loved one, the end of a relationship, the loss of a dream, or even watching a parent die. You just want to stop hurting 24-7 and find some way to make peace with your pain. And that's what I'm here to help you with. I feel like everyone listening is like, okay, yep. (laughs) It's such, it's, I mean, and I like the way that you even speak to, because when we hear the word grief, I think, or loss, it's really easy to just think about death. And obviously we're going to talk about that, of course, but that that core experience goes into, as you just shared, so many different areas of life too, not just the death of a loved one. Exactly. Um, It's because we think of grief as, you know, something we experience, this heavy feeling that we have in the center of our chest when someone dies, that we tend to ignore all the other kinds of small losses that we have in our daily lives. The little hurts, the little disappointments, the friend, um, you know, who you thought was going to be there for you and couldn't because she got caught up with something. That leaves you with a feeling of disappointment. But Oftentimes, what happens is that we tend to push those losses away because we feel, 
I don't have a right to grieve over something like this. There's major stuff happening. There's school shootings and people are being killed and people are dying from terminal illness. How dare I call this a loss and and suffer over it? And so we have this huge judgment that we bring to the small losses we experience. Mm -hmm. That's so well said. So I'd love to hear the story of how you got started doing this work because this wasn't what you always did, right? No way. I had no idea that I would be doing this. So um, this was the spring of 2008 when my husband, my 15-year-old daughter, and I moved to the United States from India. And we came here because um, our green cards literally dropped into our lap. So my husband's sister has lived here for 30-some years, and she had applied for us to immigrate when my daughter was a newborn. Of course, in the first couple of years, we were through. We were really excited and anxiously waiting for our paperwork. Nothing showed up from the consulate. And so we kind of forgot about it. The years went by. My daughter started school and, you know, she was in high school when out of the blue, the U.S. consulate started sending us paperwork to look at. And within two months, we had our green cards and a decision to make. Now, this is a big decision. Everybody, uh, my family, our friends, everyone thought we were crazy. I mean, your daughter is like 14 and a half, 15. You're trying to move her to America where where kids kiss in the school hallways. Are you crazy? You're going for, (laughs) you know, we got so much pushback. My husband and I took a deep breath and said, so what do we do? And we decided that if things line up as they are meant to, and everything falls into place, then we know we are meant to go. And if there's obstacles in our path and things seem difficult and things don't work out, then we know we're not meant to go. So we just left it up to the universe, God, whatever you want to call that, that divine force that runs everything. And everything lined up. I mean, two months, people would give an arm and a leg to get a green card. So we just had a decision to make, everything lined up, and we said, let's go. And, and a big piece of that was my husband's um, employer in India um, said, we can find you a position in Chicago, so if you want to take it, you can. And so when the job thing um, solidified, we said, we shouldn't worry about this anymore. Let's go. Let's go see what happens. It's going to be um, wonderful for our daughter, who was 15 and, and was ready to start her life. And I'm really happy and grateful to say that she graduated just last week. Um, um, She finished her Master of Fine Arts in Creative Writing from Columbia College in Chicago. And we've been here 10 years now, so it just seems like a milestone moment. But anyway, to get back to what you asked me, so when I came here, my plan was to teach ESL, English as a Second Language, to Immigrants. Because in India, I worked part-time for the British Council. I have an international degree in teaching and training from Cambridge University in the UK. And this is what I did for a living. I went out to software companies and worked with employees whose um, you know, job skills were fantastic, but they struggled with communication. And the world was opening up. So that means they had to learn to communicate with the U.S., with the U.K., and language was a big problem. So what I did was I taught them business English skills, how to communicate, how to make a presentation, how to write emails, that kind of thing. Well, I knew 
moving to the US, I couldn't do that anymore because everyone speaks English here. So I said, the next thing I can do is um, teach ESL. Well, when I came here, uh, when my family moved here, it was the recession. No jobs were available. And my degree, for some reason, was simply not recognized anywhere I went. So I was wondering what to do um, at the time. And all the jobs that I applied for, nothing opened up. The only part-time position that opened up was at a retirement community. And I'm thinking, really, universe, I know nothing about the seniors in this part of the world. I don't know their food. I don't know their music. I don't know the world they came from. What am I going to do living in this place? What will I even have to say to these people? But the universe is perfect. It's, it's we who, who need to catch up. Um, Ten days after my family and I moved to Chicago, because we spent about three weeks with my sister-in-law and their family getting our social security and buying a secondhand car and finding an apartment in Chicago. So we moved to our apartment in Chicago. And ten days later, my mother in India is diagnosed with stage four cancer. So that news was utterly devastating. And my husband said to me, you have to get on a plane and go back to India. And I'm going, what? How can I go back to India? Our daughter was getting ready to go to summer school because she needed some extra credits. The education system in India is very different from what it is here. And she needed some extra credits. And I said to him, how can I just leave everything here? Everything is so unsettled. We are still buying mattresses and toothbrushes and cobbling together a kitchen. How can I just leave? And he said, if you don't go, you may regret it. And I have no idea why he said that. He's not someone who says things like that. But he said, I think you should go. And so I said, okay, let me go. And I got on a plane six weeks later. I was back home with my mother. I stayed with her for a month and a half while she went through chemo. Um, my father was already bedridden by then. He had been um, very, very seriously ill for some 10 years uh, up, uh, leading up to this point because he'd had a road accident and suffered a brain injury and my mother was taking care of him. So when her cancer diagnosis happened, like we were all thrown for a loop, we didn't know what was going on. So anyway, I, I go back home, I'm, I spend time with dad, I spend time with my mother. And when I left India, I had no idea that that was the last time I would be seeing her. So I said goodbye to her, I got on a plane, came back to Chicago and she died in in January of 2009. So it, there were just eight months between her diagnosis and death. Wow. When yeah, when she died, I I was just plunged into this really dark place because I was in a new country and a new culture. I was just about learning how to drive. I was in my mid 40s. I had no friends here. All my family was back in India. I didn't know what to do. I had no idea how I was going, how I was going to get through this. Um, and I had this burning desire to understand death and dying. You know, death and dying is, is, is not too far from our lives in India. It's part of what we experience because it's such a community event. Um, you know, I've had grandparents die at home. So it's, it's been a part of my life growing up. Um, the adults in my life always talked about things like reincarnation and soul birth, 
things I never understood and never cared to understand because it didn't make sense at the time. But now all the pieces of those puzzle were falling into place. And I had this desire to understand, like, why do we come here? Why are we here? And what are we meant to do with this life? Because there was one image, Nicole, that just grabbed hold of me and wouldn't let go. And it was the image of my mother lying on the floor of her home, dressed in a silk sari, this beautiful silk sari draped around her with a rose garland placed on her body, ready to go to the crematorium. And I thought, oh my God, the only thing she gets to take with her is the sari she's wearing, nothing else. Mm -hmm. And the only thing she leaves behind is the love she created while she was here. And the way I love such fantastic ripple effect on everyone I've touched and everyone they touch. So just imagine the ripples that can go out into the universe if you love well. And so that became passion. Yeah, that's so well said. Uh, oh, especially that image that you just shared of, okay, this is the only thing she's taking with her and what do we leave behind? And I mean, that those are these are such huge questions, right? And yet they're going to touch everyone. Exactly. And we don't spend any time thinking about these things because they are uncomfortable, because life is pretty good in the moment. Why would I like think about death and dying and what I came here to do and how I should be in the world? Um, and that was me. For most of my life, I was, I mean, I, we've had our share of challenges. Like my father was alcoholic when he sobered up and we thought life got back on track. He had the road accident. Um, my sister had a broken engagement. So we've been through stuff. But for the most part, like I never had to worry about money. I always had a good job, earned really well. Um, my husband had a good job. And, you know, we had this beautiful child. And she was such a, she, people call her a dream child because she was just such a, an amazing, wise soul that came into our lives. Um, that I wasn't going to spend my time thinking about death and dying and grief and, you know, how I was meant to be in the world. But back in those days, I would watch the Oprah show. So we got like really ancient um, episodes of the Oprah show in India, but I would, something about Oprah captivated me. And I sat and watched every show of hers that I could. Until today, o Oprah is a big mentor of mine, whether she knows it or not, maybe she'll never know it, maybe she will. Um, but I learned a lot from watching her shows and about purpose and living by our soul values. So there, there was something stirring within me. I just didn't pay it any attention, but it was time for all that stuff to take, you know, center stage when my mother died. And I decided I want to investigate this thing called death and dying. And I want to help people who are in this place find a way to get to the other side. Mm -hmm. So after your mother's death, what questions do you feel like you were left with? What were you asking yourself? Um, who am I? What am I here to do? What is the purpose of this life? Um, why do we spend all our time obsessing about the things that we never get to take with us anyway? These were some of the questions. And what, what are my dreams? How do I want to live this life? What do I want to spend my time on earth creating? Those were the questions I began to be obsessed with. 
how long did it take you to start to come up with answers to those? Because those, I mean, those are huge questions, right? That like, even as you're saying that, I'm like, oh yeah, I'm asking myself those questions every single day. Right. <laughs> so right. I, I'm curious about you know what that sort of what that answering process looked like, um, and then uh, also as much as you're comfortable talking about what grief looked like for you, because I feel like it's so interesting that we have, you know, words like grief and loss, and they're single words that are meant to encompass something that's really deep and really messy and doesn't always look like how we expect it to look. And I think as much as um, what you said that, you know, we're so hesitant to talk about death and dying, I think we're also hesitant to talk about and very uncomfortable with grief, both our own and other people's grief as well. Right. So, I'm going to talk about my grief first because um, to me, growing up in a family where it was okay to cry um, gave me the permission to just be messy and imperfect with my grief. My parents never ever said to me or any of my siblings, don't cry or, you know, don't be a sissy or get over it or be strong. We were allowed to cry. So... Crying is very comfortable for me. I am a big crier. I cry at weddings. I cry at funerals. I cry when a, a baby comes into the world. I cry when a baby takes her first step. I mean, you just name it. It's a beautiful sunset. I'm crying. So I'm a big crier. And I, I think tears are, are, are wonderful because I think it's it's tears that are not shed make other organs weep. It's something I've read somewhere and it came to mind. So I'm mentioning that. Um, and I think there's a lot of truth to that. So my grief was completely messy, imperfect. I cried buckets and buckets of tears. Um, I lay awake at night thinking about all of these questions I just mentioned to you. But what was really hard for me, Nicole, was the fact that I didn't have anyone to talk to. Mm-hmm. I am an extrovert. I love connection. I love companionship. And I just didn't know people in this country. I didn't have friends. And Worse than that, nobody knew my mother. When somebody doesn't know your mother and you tell them she died and I'm grieving and I'm having a really hard time, what do they say to you? I mean, this person is non-existent and you really don't have, as it is, there's so much uh, like confusion and awkwardness around what to say to someone who's grieving. And added to that is the fact that you don't even know this person, someone who lived in India, which is a, which is a, strange, weird culture anyway. What do you say? So I didn't even know what to say to people. I didn't, I felt like I had to keep all those words locked up inside of me. And the most important thing, I had to keep them locked up even with my husband and my daughter. My daughter was, of course, a teenager. I couldn't expect her to sit down and listen to my ramblings. But even my husband would not speak my mother's name for fear that he would tipped me over the edge. And I was so close to the edge because of um, the way I was expressing my grief. My husband comes from a family where they just don't talk about any of the stuff. They shove it under the carpet and they carry on and they're strong and, you know, you just move on with life. So for him to see me being so messy and so open and so vulnerable, it just pushed him to the edges of his own personal discomfort. And he didn't know what to say to me. He thought it was awful and messy. He would often say, well, um, you know, people lose their mothers when they're really young. And that didn't help. 
um, you had her all these years and that didn't help. So I just stopped talking to him because I knew he was just trying to fix my sorrow. It couldn't be fixed. Nothing he said was going to make it better. It was, in fact, making it worse. So I was struggling to contain this this huge ocean of sorrow inside me and not being able to give voice to it because I do best when I can speak about what is bothering me with someone else. Mm-hmm. So that was my big struggle. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm I'm the same. I mean, obviously, I'm an extrovert. I host a podcast for a living. So <laughs> yes, of course. Um, but yeah, being able to process things with someone else. I mean, it's, uh, that was going to be one of my questions too about the impact of your grief on your closest relationships, because I think there is that element of you know, wanting to fix someone else's pain or wanting to make it better or not knowing how to allow space for it or it feeling awkward, like you said. And, you know, I think there's also a, and I'm sure this is a, a, a cultural thing, but I mean, here at least, I think that there's almost a time limit on what we think is acceptable for, you know, it's been X amount of months or it's been a year, you know, aren't you over this already? Maybe people don't say that straight out, but I think that there's an element of that that's really present that we're almost like relieved when people, you know, quote, get back to normal, whatever that looks like. Yeah, I actually think people do say that I run a Facebook group for women who are grieving. It's called Transform Pain into Purpose. And something I hear over and over again is women telling me how their friends and their family members say it's been long enough. Stop crying. You need to get over this. You need to move on. So people do say those things and um, invalidate someone's sorrow. But nobody really has the right to tell you how long this journey should take. It's a very personal journey. It brings up stuff that you haven't looked at before. Maybe, um, you know, when you were five years old, um, your dog died and no one told you about it. Your father buried it in the backyard or said it had been sent to a farm to live with somebody else. And Overnight, this this thing, this creature, this this beautiful thing that you loved disappeared from your life. And there was no way you could process it because you were too little. You just believed what the adults told you. But all of this stuff that doesn't, uh, that remains unprocessed and unhealed comes up in your adult life when something rocks your world. When someone dies, when someone ends a relationship, when a friend betrays you, when a business partner you know, does something um, and and breaks a commitment, all of the stuff that you haven't paid attention to comes up and you have to look at it. So it will take as long as it needs to. If you haven't looked at anything, it's it's going to take quite a while. Mm -hmm. So nobody has the right to tell anybody your grief should be over next Wednesday. Mm -hmm. No. Yeah. 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 I, I'm, I'm curious. Uh, and I, I mean, this is probably just me projecting. Um, both of my parents are, are still living. And uh, last summer, my mother and I had an interesting experience. Um, we hadn't been close for quite a while. And I don't know what happened. I essentially woke up one day and had this really strong realization that if we don't work on our relationship, and then she dies, that that's going to be sort of like the regret of my life, that there will be unfinished business there and sort of the guilt of that or the feelings around that. And I think, you know, I certainly can't be the only one that feels that way. And I'm curious either for you with your mother or even for clients that you work with, um, if there's anything that you want to share or speak to about that idea of sort of the guilt of unfinished business when there's loss. I just want to say I love the way the universe guides these conversations because the biggest piece of my grief healing work now, um, so the biggest piece of training I've added on to, which is really deepening my, my grief healing work with clients, 
is healing the mother wound, is healing family trauma, intergenerational family trauma slash karma. And the first piece of that or the biggest piece of that is the mother wound. So I find nine out of 10 women who come to me, come to me with stories of, you know, chronic illness or anxiety, addictions, um, very um, difficult relationships, repetitive patterns that are unhealthy. And we often trace everything back to a mother wound that happens usually zero to three. So it's not even a wound that you're conscious of. Something happened in utero when your mother was carrying you. She lost somebody she loved or she and dad had a difficult relationship um, or you were born or you were conceived in a womb where other children died and mother's feelings about these children and the anxiety about holding on to the pregnancy is cascading into your bloodstream through her hormones. There are so many different reasons, Nicole, but the mother wound is one of the most significant wounds we have to look at. So I um, for the most part, had a healthy relationship with my mother. I did go through the the period of, you know, adolescent angst when she was the most uncool person on the planet <laughs> uh, because my mother never worked outside the home. You know, she she stayed home, she raised us, and she kept the family together. And I thought that was boring. I thought she had no ambition. I, I thought of her as someone, you know, who who really had no dreams. And I thought, how can you live a life, li life like this? How can you be happy just cooking, cleaning, waiting for your husband to come home? And during his drinking days, my father, you couldn't even tell when he would come home. So I didn't understand that. Um, when I grew up in the 80s in India, it was a time of, you know, we were watching shows on TV about Western women and independence and being career oriented. So that's what fueled my dreams. And I vowed never to be like her, meaning I said, I'll make my own money. I'm never going to depend on a man for money. Um, I'm going to have a career that I'm proud of. I'm going to have dreams. So during my adolescent years, I just I just saw her for who she was and I didn't didn't really admire or appreciate what she did. It was only in retrospect that I knew what a hard life it was for her to stick with my dad through everything, take such good care of him, keep us all together and the family together, um, especially because I now work with so many women who come from homes, broken homes and blended families. That was not my reality, and I have so much more gratitude and appreciation for what my mother did. Um, so, yeah, so the, so the mother wound is such a significant wound, um, and if it remains unhealed, just yesterday someone messaged me and said, my mother is 87 and has Alzheimer's. How can I even um, complete what's unfinished with her? And I said, you can do it. You can do it energetically. It might even be easier because she has Alzheimer's because she will be more open to the love. Um, so if you have unfinished business that you haven't completed, you haven't declared your love, you haven't asked for forgiveness, you haven't delivered an apology, those things really haunt people. And I can tell you this because I'm someone who works with 
women who carry these burdens. You don't want to do that. You want to finish it no matter how hard it is. And it can be really hard and challenging. So find someone to help you through the process, to show you how to do it. And then just get it done. Because life is too short to carry these resentments and wounds and grudges too long where you get to a place where you look back and say, I wish I had done that. And now, you know, I can't tell her that I loved her and appreciated her for what she did. Mm -hmm. Did you feel like you had any of those, oh, if only type of thoughts with your mother? I did. I didn't tell her that I loved her in so many words. I don't think I had a conversation with her where I said, I really um, appreciate you for holding our family together through all the trials and tribulations we went through. I didn't always feel this way about you. There were times when I judged you. Um, but I, I want to say now that, you know, I really see what you've done for us and how much you've... She was just such a loving, gentle soul that just modeling that for me was, you know, I looked at it as you don't know how to stand up for yourself. You're such a doormat and, you know, you let people walk all over you and you don't know how to fight back. I went to the other end of the spectrum and I had to actually find my way back to the middle. Even now there are days when I have to remind myself, no, I don't have to be so offended, um, you know, because someone did something or said something. It's okay. It's about them. It's not about me. So my mother would never hold a grudge, never talk back, never, never carry a resentment, and what I thought of as, you know, the doormat person, I, I now know it takes a lot of courage to do that. So I, I did have moments of regret that I didn't get to say this to her. But uh, a mentor of mine that I was working with at the time when I was grieving um, her death had me write a letter to her where I literally poured my heart out um, and said everything that I hadn't been able to say to her. And that was such a relief. Mm -hmm. It really felt like I had, I had gotten this load off my back. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, and that's, that's a really specific example and a specific tool I think that could be helpful for folks. Was there anything else when you were going through the most acute part of your own grief? I know you mentioned the hardest part being not having someone to talk to and really process it with. What did help you? I actually stuck my neck out and went to a grief support group. Now, I didn't know the first thing about a grief support group. Um, back then in India, we didn't have those groups. I don't know if they have them now. I doubt they do because family and friends becomes your support network and community. Um, but because I didn't have that support network, I decided I needed to be with people where it was safe for me to cry, where I could talk about my mother, where people would just see me as someone who's going through a season. And so I signed up for a nine-week grief support group at a local church. And it was scary because I didn't know anything. I didn't know anybody. I was just walking into something that was completely, completely new, uncharted territory for me. But once I got to the loss of parent table, um, there were men and women sitting around that table. Some were mourning the loss of a father. Many were mourning the loss of a mother. And the moment we started talking and sharing our stories, you know, the color of our skins fell away, our accents fell away, our countries and cultures fell away. And it was this raw story of loss that connected everybody. You know, it became the universal story of loss. And I really felt like I, I had found my tribe there. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I think that there, that can be related to so many other situations too, whether it's, you know, mental health or other things, or, you know, for me, sobriety, anything that you're struggling with, or if you feel alone, even though it can be so scary, like you said, to take that initial step to get help, to surround yourself with those people, that there's something really powerful. Even if you do have a support system of family and friends, if they're not going through what you're going through, there's something that's so powerful about being with folks who can't, you know, aren't just willing to listen, but actually can understand and relate. Yeah, so true. But even so, I find uh, that some women in my Facebook group, they they will say to me, um, you know, I I really don't like going to that support group because it's all it becomes all about some members who hog the limelight, who talk about their problems. I don't feel seen. I don't feel heard or validated. So I think there is a process where you have to check out a few groups, see what's right for you and then make the decision because not all groups are going to be right for you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. No, I agree with that. Um, What do you wish were different in how we typically approach loss and grief? Hmm. I think um, the first thing that comes to mind is I wish people would try to stop fixing those who are grieving. Like, you know, you make me uncomfortable. Your tears make me uncomfortable. Um, I don't know what to say to you, and that makes me feel uncomfortable, so I'm going to try and fix you. I wish people would just learn how to listen. You know, um, I think it was Patrick O'Malley, a grief therapist and author, who said, the very act of being listened to changes the structure of, of your brain. So just having someone listen to your story of loss, because there's a real need to Tell the story of loss as a way to make it real. Like this terrible thing, this big thing happened. I don't know how it happened. I have no sense of um, the fact that I'm moving through this transition. But I need to tell the story as a way to make it real for me. And so when I sit down with somebody, I don't want them to hear, oh, yeah, this happened to my sister-in-law two years ago. You know, her father-in-law was diagnosed with cancer and we went through this. The, the focus is like completely shifted to somebody else. And that just makes me feel much more lonely than I felt when the conversation started. You know, this is something we do all the time. We try and tell a story that is worse than ours uh, or the, the one that's worse that, than we're listening to as a way to make this person feel better. Nothing could be further from the truth. This person feels worse when you try and tell them another story which takes the focus off their pain. What they need is for you to be present with their pain. So if you can't be present with their pain, that's okay. Not everyone has it in them to sit in the fire of loss with you. So if you recognize that about you, leave them alone is what I would say. I mean, that is less damaging than being there and trying to fix them and tell them how they should think and what they should feel. Mm -hmm. So I really wish people would stop fixing and would learn to listen better. And if you want to learn how to listen better, then, then, then actually work with somebody. Improve your listening skills. There's resources out there that can, that can help you become a compassionate l- listener. And if you can't do that, then recognize that, which is a good thing, I think, if you recognize you can't do something and you can be honest enough to admit that, then move away and leave that person alone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was going to be another question, too, of just sort of tips that you have of how to support a loved one who's grieving. 
Um, I think I did a Facebook live just just this week uh, about this. Um, I would say listening, listening definitely is a very big uh, way to help the other person feel supported. You don't have to say anything. You don't have to advise. You don't have to um, fix it. You don't have to be Pollyanna-ish, nothing. Just sit and listen with your ears and your heart. Allow them to be messy, imperfect, tell the story, go off at tangents, just be the container that can hold the space for the story. Um, Another thing you can do is really be specific in the way you offer help. So saying to someone who's grieving, you know, let me know if there's anything I can do for you is a really nice sentiment, but doesn't do much for them. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't have the energy to think about what you can do to help them. They barely have enough energy to get out of bed, take a shower, put on clothes and drive to work. So if you can tell them things like, I'll walk your dog every Thursday. I'll show up on the weekend and do a load of laundry for you. Um, I can write checks for you if that would help. Be specific in whatever way you can help them. That is super useful. Um, When people have gone away back to their jobs and lives, check in on the person who's grieving. That's when the void feels really empty and dark. You know, as long as people are around you, you feel comforted, you feel supported, you don't feel alone, but that only lasts like, I think, three days, maybe one week, maybe 10 days. What happens when everyone goes back to their lives? So check in on the person who's grieving. Even if they don't answer your um, phone calls, leave voicemails saying, I care. I know what you're going through. I know this is really hard for you. I just want you to know I'm thinking of you. Mail cards to them. Send personalized text messages. I did this for a friend who did not respond for something like, I'm going to say eight to nine months. She never returned my phone calls. She never responded to my texts. And I just kept doing this. And she tells me even today, those eight months, you're checking in on me constantly. I cannot even begin to tell you how much that meant to me and how it kept me going. So you don't know because you're not getting feedback from the person who's grieving about whether it's helping, whether it's working. It doesn't matter. It cannot hurt when you leave a voicemail that says, I'm thinking of you. I just want you to know I'm here for you. Mm -hmm. That's it. You can't go wrong with a sentence like that. Yeah, I really love what you said about making your offers to help specific. Um, My personal experience, I, like I said, I haven't lost a parent, I haven't gone through this level of grief. And yet there's so much in what you're saying that resonates with me with my experiences with depression, you know, with mental illness, this is the same thing when you're going through a depressive episode that, you know, people can say, oh, let me know if you need anything. And even that, I like don't even know how to think about what maybe I would need or what to even ask for. And the way right. that you just described it, it's so, so, so true. If someone makes a very specific offer of, hey, I know, you know you're know you having a hard time or going through this, you know, can I come over and bring a movie and we'll watch it? Or like, the, and that's just like such a simple example, but the really specific things, because then it gives someone something to either say yes or no to, or to say no, but this other thing would be great, right? Like, because I think 
that there can almost be an emptiness in the vague offers to help because Mm -hmm. it's you never know as the recipient of that. Are they saying it because that's what we're supposed to say? Like, do they actually want to help once it gets specific of, hey, I'd like to make you dinner every Monday or whatever it is, right? I'd like to bring over food every night this week. I know there's something in that that I feel like is incredibly powerful that you just shared. It is. And and the other piece of that is, um, so I want to talk about what you just said. You know, when someone says, let me know what I can do to help. It's almost like, uh, you know, how when people say, uh, when people ask you, how are you? And you say, I'm good. You know, you've answered, you've, you've given them a response. It doesn't give them any information. It probably doesn't even tell the truth about how you're feeling. And let me know how you can help is, again, one of those statements um, that's a nice sentiment but doesn't really communicate very much at all. The other piece of this is that some of us know how to do. We, we are more comfortable doing, and some of us are more comfortable being. I'm definitely, I like to call myself the beer. <laughs> I, I can be with people when they're going through pain. I'm not a big doer, I'll be honest. I'm not the one who will who will come in and organize and take care and sort your closet and I'm I'm not that person. That's me. But I'm that I'm, person. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So we all have our strengths, right? So let's play to our strengths. I can hold someone's hand and just listen to them without saying a word. If they don't want to say anything, I can just sit there, hold their hand and sit in the silence. That's it. I know how to do that. I can do that. But if you know you're not someone who who can do that, it feels really icky to you and it would feel awkward and uncomfortable, find something you can do. You may be that person who wants to do the laundry and bring dinner every Saturday and and bring a movie and says, you know, let's watch a movie together. Maybe that'll cheer you up or, or, you know, I'll walk your dog or, uh, you know, I'll um, look at your paperwork. So if you know you are a doer, and I'm guessing most people that are listening to this uh, podcast interview are doers, find something you can do that that then lets you use your strength and is a real act of service to the person who's grieving. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I love that so much. So I want to pivot a little bit um, and ask you about something uh, that I don't remember where I read it, but something that you said that really struck me, um, it might have been on your blog, you said the first step to healing anything is the willingness to heal. And I'd love for mm-hmm. you to say more about what you mean by that? Because I, I, it definitely caught me off guard of, oh, right, we have to actually want to heal and be willing to go through that. I don't know. I would just love for you to talk about mm-hmm. that. Yeah. So, you know, with healing and the work I do, I always keep discovering new layers of um, truth. Um, and so what I see today in our culture is that we have this, you know, green juice and hot yoga culture where <laughs> everything... <laughs> Everything can be fixed with, you know, meditation and chakra clearing and colon cleanses. And, you know, we, we, again, it's become more about doing, doing, doing without knowing how to really be present to our pain and asking pain what it is seeking from us. So um, what I mean by the willingness to heal is that I now realize and recognize that the willingness to heal involves letting go. It means owning up to stuff that you haven't looked at. It means forgiving people you haven't forgiven. It means apologizing to people and making amends. All of that is part of the willingness to heal. But that's like hard stuff to do. Like who wants to go ask for forgiveness or, you know, even forgive someone you've been angry with for like 10 years. So you you do the intellectual thing and say, forgiveness is the right thing to do. So I'm going to forgive. 
and you you do a little ritual around it or you 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 do something half baked and you convince yourself you've forgiven this person but your illness or your pain or this nagging feeling of anxiety or your panic attacks something is not okay your body is still telling you there's something to look at there's something to heal here and i think when you get to the root of what you need to heal which is probably you know i need to go pick up the phone and call my brother who i haven't talked to in 3 years um i need to really understand that the judgments i've been holding around my mother are really more about me and my pain you know gabby um, gabby bernstein in her book judgment detox speaks so eloquently about this she says that underneath every judgment is a wound you're not willing to look at that sentence just blew my mind away and i thought about it and thought about it and thought about it like i do when i come across something that's that's meant to land in my heart and i see that that's so true even about the judgments i have about people like if i judge somebody if i judge a client okay who has has committed to an appointment and for some reason blows off the appointment i'm making up a story about you are not honoring my time and you don't respect me and you don't blah 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 but underneath that is this thing that i feel somehow i feel disrespected i feel less than i feel like i'm not good enough and it's those feelings i need to look at because the the client who blew off the appointment did that because there was some stress or something going on in their life that they didn't know how to manage and i'm not saying allow clients to do this we must have boundaries but we can be kind and compassionate in the way we communicate the fact that we need we need boundaries and you need to be able to find some way to let me know or you know um send me an email or something but what i'm trying to get at is underneath our judgments is always a wound is a personal wound and so when we are not look willing to look at all of these things which are really hard to look at it's hard to look inside of you and say you know yeah i feel like i'm less than and so judgment makes me feel like when i judge somebody as oh she's always so superior my god she thinks she's the cat's whiskers i feel good about me it's covering up my own feelings of inferiority and so if we are not willing to go to those dark and hard places um you know what do you need to forgive mm-hmm. what who do you need to make amends with where is this pain in you which is why your body is simply crying for attention so if something is unhealed or feels like it's off um and is standing in the way of your best life there's no place to go but within so then asking the question am i really willing to heal this am i doing the hard work that it takes to face my pain to face my wounds to admit to myself that i haven't completed something i haven't accepted something about this situation or person instead i'm making it more about them mhm and i think when you do that work you open the magic door yeah which so that uh, my next question i guess is sort of the the what comes next from that right so being willing to do that work being willing to heal and you know you spoke before to how grief's going to take as long as it takes right and that that process you know staying mm-hmm. in the season of grief for as long as it takes and i'm curious and i i know there's no magic answer to this but sort of the balance between letting that be true staying in the season of grief for as long as it takes you know the willingness to heal doing all that yet also you know 
moving forward, like allowing yourself to heal, sort of like the, I don't really, maybe I'm not articulating this well, but like how to heal without rushing it, without numbing out, but allowing space for it. It's, there's like something in that, that I feel like I'm interested to hear you speak to, like, what does it look like to allow it and also still be progressing through it without rushing it, but without sort of avoidance or numbing out something in there. Mm. Does that make sense? it makes perfect sense. And I'm going to answer that by going back to my own life and how I did it. So when my mother died and I was in this really dark place, um, I had this part-time job in senior living and I would go in every day. There are some very lonely seniors in those communities. I would sit with them, talk to them, and I would give them what I wanted most for myself. So what what did I want in those days, I wanted companionship. I wanted someone to listen to my story. I wanted someone to say, this is not going to be forever. You're just in the season. It won't be like this always. And I did that for them. I I listened well. I wiped their tears away. I listened to their stories. I validated their pain. Um, And so I guess what I'm trying to say is give to others what you are seeking to experience for yourself. That became a big philosophy in my life during that time. My father died 18 months after my mother. So I I was dealing with two losses very close to each other. And I call those two years after my father died the apprenticeship of my soul because I did not have a paying job. I felt no inclination to go find a job. I had no desire to work. All I needed to do, it was my, like my soul was screaming at me, Nicole. I, I have no way of even explaining this to anybody because nobody can really understand what it means to have someone's soul scream. But that's what it felt like. I was just being pushed and pushed and pushed to serve. And that's all I did for two years. I, I volunteered in hospice. I worked with dying people. I went to senior living communities and I sat with the seniors. I went to nursing homes. I sat with people who had nobody visiting them, people who are in a great deal of physical and emotional pain. And that is what brought me the greatest joy. So that was like walking into the fire of loss and pain. So I didn't run away from it. It was my way of trying to understand what is this thing called death pain, grief, and why do people run away from it? I'm not going to run away from it. I'm going to walk into it. And I want to see what this feels like. Mm -hmm. And my husband would say to me, I remember when I came home, why are you doing this? Why are you going to a building where people die? You are grieving the death of your mother. You need to be with happy people. And I would say to him, honey, I have no way of explaining this to you. But every time I walk out of that building where people are dying, I feel lit up. So working as a hospice volunteer, working with seniors in that retirement community, what are some of the things you feel like you learned from those folks or maybe even changes that you wound up making in your own life as a result of you know spending time with those people? That's such a good question. Um, so many lessons from people who are dying, right? Like regrets, things they didn't get to do, the dreams they didn't follow, Um sort of um, living a life of dumbing down themselves. They became more about what their friends and family members wanted to be, and they never really expressed their authentic selves because it was too scary. They feared rejection. So they would tell me stories from their lives about, don't do this. Um, Learn from the mistakes I've made. Follow your dreams. 
um, everything's going to be okay. At the end of the day, so what if you have a lot of money? You still have to die. And you may die young. You may die old. You never have control over that. You may as well follow what you're passionate about because you'll die happy. That's the one thing you can control, right? You don't control how you die or when you die, but you, you get to decide and you can control whether you die doing something that makes you really miserable or, you know, you, you're in the fullness of life. You're, you're really making a difference in the world. You are sharing your gifts and talents with people. And those are lessons that have, I mean, like just changed my life. In the senior living community, um, even today, I see how um, some seniors age so gracefully and I learn so much from them. And I see how some seniors are so stuck in their stories of um, of pain and victimhood and, you know, sacrificing their lives for everybody else. And I never got to do anything for myself and leaving their homes and giving up their driving license. And, you know, they, they s- remain so stuck in that space of bitterness and regret I see that, you know, you have to start aging well when you are in your 50s and 60s. You don't get to do it in your 70s and 80s. You start your practice work. It's like the, you know, the, what the Buddhists say about do your sitting practice. You have to start aging well in your 50s and 60s. And so when you get to your 70s and 80s, you have shed layers and layers. You have let go. You have embraced your soul's values. And I can see this this soul light shine from these seniors who seem to be so much at peace, who are so comfortable in their wrinkled skin and their sagging, you know, um, features. They're just in that place where their light shines through. No one's even noticing those wrinkles anymore. But it's the people who have remained identified um, by their ego, by the work they did in the world, by their possessions, when they get to their 70s and 80s, if they haven't found a better way to live and express their being, they become really, really unhappy and miserable, and they die unhappy lives, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Since you've started doing this work, what are some of the most common questions that you have been asked about grief and loss? A question that I'm always asked is, how did you do grief and loss in a country that you knew nothing about? Like, you had nobody to guide you. Um, How did you do this all alone? And I have to say, I didn't do this all alone because I kind of moved into a deeper relationship, a richer relationship with the divine at this time. You know how when everything falls apart, when everything breaks down, there is a breakthrough Um, And for me, that breakthrough was my spirituality, my transformation. And so I didn't go looking for a grief therapist because I didn't want to work with a therapist. I haven't, I don't want to sound very la-dee-da, but I haven't gone to a therapist in India for anything. Um, And for me, the idea of going to a grief therapist, sitting on a couch and talking about my pain didn't seem like a very attractive idea. What I wanted to do instead was grow through the pain. So I found myself a spiritual mentor. So this person who worked with me for two and a half years really helped me with what I was looking for. So we read books and, you know, we engaged in deep, soulful conversations. We wrestled with difficult 
questions about the mysteries of life and death, um, for me, that is what liberated my soul. That was most helpful at the time. Um, so, so people ask me, you didn't go to a grief therapist, why didn't you? So this is the answer to that. And they ask me how I managed to navigate life in a new country and navigate the territory of grief and loss. Um, lots of books, lots of good books, um, lots of good conversations with my mentor, um, lots of soul searching, journaling, um, getting into the practice of meditation, which is something I started consistently after my mother died. Um, so I kind of found my way um, through all of these different things that helped me. Um, so that's that's the best way I can answer that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm. Uh, and again, uh, what I'm about to ask, I know you don't have any magic answers. I'm just kind of curious on your thoughts and experience. I feel like a common theme. I spoke to a couple of uh, friends and people that are close to me, knowing that I was going to be having this conversation with you and sort of asking, hey, what would you like us to talk about that type of thing? And something that came up a couple of times was this idea of pain is painful, obviously. And so how to give yourself permission to grieve, like how to let yourself feel and be present to pain, even when doing that seems impossible. Mm, such a good question. So something that my clients often ask me, which is related to what you're asking me is, like, I have a busy life, I have a job to go to, I have bills to pay, I have things to take care of. Where do I find the time to grieve? And how do I give myself permission to be with my pain? And a practice that I often suggest is create a grief altar. So you may have 15 minutes a day. And that's all you have right now, because maybe you have kids, maybe you have um, commitments, you have, uh, you have a very stressful job, and you don't have all the time in the world to sit there and be present with your pain. But if 15 minutes is all you have, create that space, create a grief altar where you place your loved one's photograph, um, the books they like, the movies and music they enjoyed, anything that you and they shared that's special, bring flowers to the space, bring crystals, bring cards, anything that speaks to you and the connection you shared with them. And allow yourself to be in this space. If you have only 15 minutes, spend 15 minutes and sit there and do what comes most naturally to you in that time. So maybe today you want to just sit there and cry. All, you, all you're feeling in the moment is you're missing them. You don't know if you can do life without them. Just sit there and allow yourself to cry. Maybe another day you want to read passages from a book that you and they shared or that was a favorite of theirs. So just sit there and read those passages. Another day, maybe you want to pick up a journal and just write a letter to them. Or you want to arrange flowers in that space as a way of making a special offering to them as a way of saying thank you to this life you you shared with each other. Whatever it is, can you give yourself permission for those 15 minutes to sit there and feel what you need to feel? Mm -hmm. So that could be one way to do it. Yeah, I think uh, that's such, such a good tip. I feel like that what came up for me when you were talking, um, uh, you mentioned not working with a therapist. I am a big fan of therapy. It's been very successful for me. And one of the things that um, the that the way I describe it to people, one of the things that I love the most about therapy is that it creates a container in my week that I know I'm going to have this hour every week to be mm. completely honest, to, to deal with the things. So if it's Thursday at 2 p.m. and I'm spiraling out about something, I can say, 
to myself, it's okay. You can talk to Jessica about this on Monday, right? And something about what you just said resonates with me in that regard of like 15 minutes doesn't sound like a lot, but if you have, it's the intentional time. It's the intentional, right? If you're making space for that and doing it with your whole heart, that it's almost like it releases that pressure valve a little bit or that then you can go to work. You can, and it doesn't mean the grief is gone or the thing, you know, doesn't still exist, but I can see how what you're saying makes it more manageable, even if it's not the death of a loved one, if it's just anything that you're going through that seems to be, that you get keep getting stuck in, right? That like, it's a loop you keep getting stuck in to have 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes where you give your full attention to that. That sounds, that's great advice. I'm going to take that for myself. So thank you. (laughs) Right. And, and just so you know, I mean, I have the greatest respect for therapists. It's just that I didn't have a therapist in India and to find one now and begin the process of conversing about my grief didn't seem like the best fit. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing I want to say, what what you spoke about is, I love the words pressure valve. That's exactly what that space is meant to do. You know, it could even be that you sit in your car, maybe you're, you're not at this space and you're feeling this, the, this sorrow welling up in your chest. Can you just go find a bathroom or can you go and sit in your car? Just place a hand on your heart and say, I see you. I hear you. I'm here for you. I'm not avoiding you. Life is just busy, but I want to take a moment to say, I see you. Just speak to your pain. Tell your pain, you are there. You are present. That's all pain seeks from us. And that pressure valve will release in the moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, in my experience with pain is this idea that it always comes out somewhere, right? And if, it, yeah. if you're not acknowledging it on purpose, like the truth comes out somewhere, whether that's drinking, whether that's something, it doesn't have to be something that dramatic, but it's going to come out. <laughs> so it's being able to be, if you can be more proactive about it, like you're saying, I think that, that yeah, then the pressure valve releases sort of little by little as opposed to, you know, denying mm-hmm. it, denying it, denying it, and then some kind of explosion. Right. Right. Yeah. So I know that you mentioned when you were first describing the work that you do, that in addition to specifically death and that kind of loss, that you also work uh, with supporting women through other types of grief and loss. So can you give um, a couple of examples of what that looks like? The end of a relationship is a very common one. Um, Either a relationship has reached its um, organic end and both partners feel like this is the time to say goodbye because they don't see this moving forward in the direction they thought it would go. But there is so much grief because I always like to say that grief is the death of a dream. So when it was that relationship, you had this dream of this relationship unfolding in a certain way But unfortunately, for some reason, it didn't work out and it was amicable and you decided to go your different ways. I had a client who was in this situation exactly uh, a couple of years ago. It was an amicable relationship, but they both realized that, you know, it wasn't going to go further because their goals were very different when they got to that place. And so to be able to honor that and to grieve that and, and to move through that process of letting go, that is one type of grief. Um, Many of my clients grieve the childhood they never got to have, a a relationship with a parent that they never got to have. You know, I didn't know my father or I didn't know my mother or my mother was emotionally unavailable. And so today, looking back, I, I really grieve that period in my life when I wish I had had the kind of love and nurturance that I crave even today. That's another kind of loss. 
Um, a third kind of loss could be that someone betrayed you. Uh, a, a good friend betrayed you in a way that you didn't see coming and you are shattered. You don't know where to go from here. Your sense of trust is shaken to its very core and you don't know if you'll ever be able to regroup and, and regain that trust back again. So these are all different kinds of losses that must be honored. And it could even be simple things like, you know, disappointments at the workplace. A co-worker is trying to do something that is not very kind. Um, your boss said something that was not very friendly. And uh, you realized in that moment that, you know, oh, my God, this is a sign that I need to walk away from this job. I have been denying this time and time again. But this was the final straw. I've had mothers come to me who are dealing with the emptiness syndrome. You know, they will say to me, all these years, I've made it about my husband, my children. Uh, my husband walked out of the marriage like 10 years ago. And then it was about the kids. The kids have gone to college now. And I'm rattling around in this big old house, not knowing what to do, because I don't have a dream for myself. Mm -hmm. I've spent all these years dreaming on their behalf. I don't know that I have any dreams for myself. Help me find a dream. How am I going to live the rest of my life making meaning? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm interested. I mean, and obviously I'm sure each client is different. Each of these situations is different and there's a lot that you do, but the same way that you gave the example of, you know, the grief altar specific to a loved one, even with all of these different situations, I'm particularly interested in um, what you were saying, the grief about the end of a relationship. And cause I think that that's something that in some capacity, almost everyone can relate to. And yeah. Is there anything in particular that you have found to be helpful for people that are in that space? Um, so with a few of my clients, it is that um, so the end of the relationship was not amicable. One partner decided that it was time to say goodbye um, and walked out. Or in some other cases, there was a lot of disharmony. But there was a denial on the part of my client that this relationship wasn't going to work out. And so they stayed in it and stayed in it and stayed in it until it was too late. So many times uh, I encourage them to do the inner work because the inner work is what produces the outer circumstances. So if you have not been willing to look at what it, what is it about me that that attracts a certain kind of man? Or what is it about me that makes me deny myself and always um, give my spouse the upper hand in decision making? Uh, what is it about me that makes me feel bad that I have my own business? My husband comes home in the evening after a hard day of work. I'm watching TV and I hear his car and I feel like I have to turn the TV off because it makes me feel guilty. So we go into exploring those like those murky areas where they feel stuck, where they've, their sense of self-definition comes from, and we clear the clutter out of there. So when they begin to experience a sense of expansion and freedom in doing the work, then they feel more fully aligned with who they are and the people that they attract, whether it is men or women, are more aligned with their soul values. So they, they go out into the world with a new sense of confidence about who they are. They speak their truth. They're more authentic in expressing their thoughts and ideas and dreams. They speak about what they want to create in the world um, with a new sense of elegance and poise. 
and they end up attracting a, a partner who is similar. So I always encourage people to look inside and and get really clear and honest about where have you sort of not uh, been willing to shine your light? Where have you played small? Um, or where have you disowned parts of you and, and made it about the other person? And then now that they are walking out, you're like, wow, I made this life all about you. And you just walked out and I don't even know what I did wrong. Mm -hmm. So that's where the work goes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and that makes me think back to when you were talking about the questions you were asking yourself after your mother's death, of, you know, who am I? Why am I here? And sort of connecting to that sense of purpose. And so circling back to that, I'm curious how uh, the loss and grief impacted your sense of your own life purpose or, you know, how that made you start to think about the legacy that you wanted to build and leave. Hmm. So my, um, so the way I did this was I, I began to take stock of what are my gifts, what's fun for me to create, um, how do I best express myself, who do I want to work with, who do I want to serve? And when you begin to answer those questions about what really matters to you and what are your soul values, and your soul values come from what is most enjoyable and fun for you to do and create and serve, um, I began to get clear that I love writing. Writing is a very, very big part of um, how I express myself and how I serve the world. So definitely writing and speaking, speaking, teaching, coaching, having conversations, whether it's with a client, whether it's with someone in, in one of the aisles of Jewel Osco, it doesn't matter. My purpose is I heal with words, just four words. I heal with words. And I've done a lot of work to come to that the clarity about that. And so anything I do with words to help people heal and find their better life, I'm living on purpose when I'm doing that. So for me, um, I had always loved writing. I'd, I had been writing even up until the time my mother died. So that wasn't like new for me. But the kind of writing I do, what I care about today, the the subjects that I'm I'm writing about, that I'm curious about have all changed. So this is the thing about purpose. So maybe you you always like doing something, whether it is singing or dancing or writing, but the things, the way you use that talent and the people you serve through that talent will change when you have a clear sense about your purpose. Mm -hmm. I think this is an interesting thing to dig into, I go back and forth on, you know, what I think about this idea of, you know, finding your purpose or having one true purpose. I think that, and, and so I'm interested to dig into this with you because I think sometimes for me and in conversations that I've had with folks, that there's a lot of pressure in that idea. I guess it depends on how it's portrayed, but this idea of, okay, well, everyone has one purpose. And if you don't figure it out, you're going to be miserable forever. Or, you know, like there's mm, something in it that I think right. can feel, especially if you're someone who identifies as being, you know, multi-passionate or multi-talented or, you know, mm -hmm. okay, maybe this is feels like my purpose for right now, but then that shifts. And so I'd love for you to get a little bit more specific about, you know, sort of how you think about this idea of purpose. Like, is it an I, the concept that we each have one thing that there is to uncover or that it changes with seasons? Or when you think about, um, you know, like transforming pain into purpose, which I know is something that you talk about, this idea of purpose can be really vague. And I'd love to make that more specific about what you mean when you're talking about that. 
Yeah, I think as we grow and mature, we're constantly discovering new layers about ourselves. And so the Uma I am today is not the Uma I was in 2007 or even 2000. Um, back then I was writing, yes, definitely using my gift of writing. But the thing, things I, I was writing about um, and who I was writing for was very different from what I'm writing today and what I'm curious about. So I think um, if you think of your gifts and talents as the things that really charge you up and light you up and, and feed you and nourish you, you can use those things to define your purpose. So my purpose definitely has to do with words. And I, I bring the healing aspect because I find myself doing a lot of healing work, um, both on myself and with the people I serve. So healing and words are, are kind of my, my words. Um, but what changes is that I think your overarching purpose could remain like the same. It's how you express what fires you up um, that changes given where you are and what season of life you're moving through. Mm -hmm. So I don't think I'll ever get to a place where words stop being important to me. I think that that's my soul came into this incarnation uh, with the gift of, you know, delivering words into the world, sprinkling my words everywhere, however I choose to do it. And I remember when I was a little girl, I would like, um, so teachers in India were saris, right? Um, they do. So I used to like um, take my mother's sari and sort of wrap it around me. Even as a five-year-old, I remember doing this, um, standing in a mess of, in a pool of sari because <laughs> mm -hmm. I didn't know how to tie it. But I would stand there and speak to an imaginary audience of students. Like I would st stand there uh, with a ruler in hand um, and speak to this classroom I was teaching. I always had this dream of teaching. So given that that's what I'm doing even today, and I have done it in some form or another throughout my life, lets me know that I'm on purpose, the overarching purpose to express, to teach, to, to share, to inspire, all of that remains the same. Those are my soul values. But just the way I'm doing it today is different from how I did it back in 2000 or 1996. And I, I'm, I bet it's going to be different 10 years from today. I don't know. It could change into something else. I may be doing something completely different, but I have uh, a feeling I'll be doing it with words. Um, and, and that's kind of where I am with that. Um, so I think, I don't think people have to sort of fit themselves into a box and say, I have to have one purpose and it's going to be this and nothing else. There are people who have different kinds of passions and those multi-passions may lead to different purposes. I think that's entirely possible depending on the season of life you're going through. The thing is to just explore and have fun. Like don't tie yourself down and don't get attached to the idea that you must know your purpose and that you must be defined by your purpose. If what you're waking up in the morning and doing is fun for you, you get to express who you are and it ends up serving people and making some kind of a difference and you're making some good amount of money from it, like what could be better, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, and I love even, you know, when you shared the the idea of I heal with words and that being a purpose, I feel, I, can, I mean, I connect with that a lot also as a writer and someone who speaks and uses mm -hmm. words, but this idea that feels both very specific and also very expansive, meaning I hear the, the truth in that and uh, of what you're saying, and also that it could play out in so many different ways. That could be, you know, 
coaching work for you. It could be, you know, in the seniors retirement community, it could be speaking to a large audience. It could be writing. It could be like that this idea of there's like a through line. I think sometimes with purpose, you know, this idea of a life purpose that it's almost like we try to make it too specific. And Mm -hmm. that the, if you look at, like you said, the things that bring you joy or what your talents are or the things that feel fulfilling, that there's probably some kind of a through line in that, even if the activities themselves look really different. Um, So it's looking for sort of that, what's true even in, you know, two totally different careers or what's true in different activities or this, that there's some kind of commonality there that what you're saying makes a lot of sense. Yeah. That's exactly true because I'm a person who loves variety. So if I had to become very specific with the words thing and and do only one kind of writing, I'd be bored very easily. I need a a range of things to keep it fun for me. So I do a life story group with seniors, which is a lot of fun. We get to have very interesting conversations. I write books. I write blog posts. I write newsletters. I get to have um, interesting conversations with random strangers I meet. I mean, sitting in an airplane, for instance. So I feel like I'm living my purpose anytime I do that. I, I could say something and somebody will say, wow, I never looked at it like that. You've given me something to think about. Right there, I've lived my life on purpose in that moment. Mm -hmm. So I don't think we should be so attached to this is what it looks like and this is what it is. Just be expansive and free-flowing with it. So an exercise I might um, share with you is, you know, for those listening, if you you have words that speak to you, like for me, my words are um, soul and healing and words – I would just write them in a circle and then have like spokes of the wheel going out and see how you can express these words. How, how can you make this happen for you? What can you do with, with the things that you wrote, with the values? How can, you, how can you live it? How can you express it? What does it look like when you're doing it? What does it look like when you're being it? Um, what does it look like if it's, if it's a, a job opportunity, if it's a speaking opportunity? So the more you, um, you know, ideate about this, the more ideas will come to you. And try a few of those and see what, what is fun, what is adventurous, and go from there. Because if we don't explore, and this is a mistake I see so many people making, and um, a part of my work is also life purpose coaching which is about helping people find their pain and how they can transform that pain into purpose. So a a mistake that I see a lot of people making is once I find my purpose, once I know what it is, then I can begin to live it. That's kind of backwards. You know, you need to go out there, explore, have fun, express yourself, be free flowing, and then you will begin to narrow it down to one or two things that really light you up that you want to focus on. Mm -hmm. I think that's a much better way to go. Yeah, I love that. Something else that came up for me when you were talking too is this idea of when you do start to find and are able to articulate what the things are, like using your example of healing with words, that I could see there being a a fun sort of creative brainstorming exercise of, okay, how many different ways could I think of to do that? Maybe it looks like writing books. Maybe like you you gave a bunch of different examples that I think it's easy for us to think, oh, okay, well, this is my talent. So it has to look this specific way because maybe that's the only thing or the most common thing that we've seen. But to start to think, okay, Mm -hmm. if I had to challenge myself to come up with 20 different ways to do this thing, right, and start to expand and think about how could this look, and it might be totally different than, you know, maybe the narrow options that we originally think it has to fit into. 
Right. I mean, do you want to write quizzes for a magazine? That could be fun for right. someone to do. <laughs> sure. So many things, you know. I mean, we, we sort of pick this one sentence which we think is our life purpose statement and then we put ourselves in a box and you don't have to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and I, I mean, I think obviously it's no surprise that you do life purpose work and then also, you know, so much work around grief and death and dying because there's there's such a link there, right? When you were talking about, you know, people's oh, most yeah. common regrets, I would imagine that a lot of that has to do with not, like you said, not being authentically themselves, not living whatever they felt their life purpose is. So I, I even though those might seem like different things, like there's a a clearly a strong connection between the different facets of the work that you do. Right. Yeah. Most people come to this idea of, you know, I need to live my dream now because um, I didn't think my, my husband would die or my mother would die. And what this death has taught me is that life is finite. I'm not going to be here forever. And I want to live the life I have dreamed of living. And so that then really um, turbocharges their intention to find a dream, to make it happen. Now, what do I need? What do I dream about? So sometimes it's, it's at the starting blocks. You don't even know that you have a dream. You have to think about a dream. You have to create a dream and then see how you want to make it happen, which is your legacy, which ends up being your legacy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, I can definitely see how death or loss could be a catalyst for, you know, asking these questions and taking this more seriously. But outside of that, maybe for someone who hasn't yet experienced that, what are some suggestions that you might have about how to get more comfortable with this idea of death and dying? I feel like, I mean, again, maybe it's a cultural thing, but I feel like we keep this so at arm's distance. We don't want to touch it. We don't want to talk about it. Is there anything Mm. that you would suggest about that? I think it takes courage, Nicole. You have to put yourself in situations that may be uncomfortable, But if you want to um, develop a better relationship with death and dying, I know that sounds like a funny uh, statement, but but it's true. We all need to have a relationship with death and dying because we're all going there. You can do a few of these things. You can go to a death cafe. There are so many of these death cafes sprouting up all over the place. Go to a death cafe. You don't have to say anything. Just sit there and listen to the conversations and see what that feels like. And the reason why I'm saying is it, it, it may be uncomfortable is because most likely it will be uh, if you've never, ever made the effort. It could be scary. It could feel like, you know, an extreme kind of discomfort um, all around you. But but just sit there and listen to what people are saying. What are they talking about? What questions um, are they discussing? Uh, second thing would be, you know, if you have access to a, a hospice chaplain, someone you know, you can even go to a facility where people are willing to talk about this openly. If you show that you are keen to learn, they would be willing to answer questions for you. Is there someone you haven't who's ailing and someone you haven't visited in a long time? You know, I have people tell me I didn't go. I didn't want to see him in hospice because I I knew I couldn't handle it. Force yourself to go, to go pay a visit. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, this is why I started by saying it takes courage. It takes courage to put yourself in some of those uncomfortable zones. But that's the only way to get a little more comfortable with death and dying. 
Yeah. I'm curious um, how you talk to and have talked to your daughter about death. Like what have you had? I mean, because you mentioned it being more comfortable when you were growing up, that that was something that was talked about by the elders in your life. But in raising your daughter, what have you hoped to teach her or tried to teach her? Um, I think we have more conversations around purpose and meaning because I always uh, bring up this theme of um, you know, what are you here to do and what really matters to you? And it's important for you to to create what you came here to create because you are a soul living in a human body. Um, and I also bring up conversations about uh, the, the, the fact that I'm not going to be here forever. Um, one of the gifts I gave her right before she graduated, um, I think it was high school. Yeah, I had been working on this for a while. It was just an ordinary journal I bought from Walmart. It wasn't even a fancy journal. But I was I would write letters to her in that journal. And these letters were about all kinds of things. There were stories about her grandparents that she probably didn't know, like when my um, mother and father got married. Uh, it was an arranged marriage and she didn't know that story. So I wrote uh, this story as a letter to her. I wrote um, some of her favorite recipes, some of her early childhood years and the things she said and did, which gave us lots of joy. Um, I had book recommendations for her. I wrote letters about, you know, when I'm not here, um, what are some things you need to think about and what are some things you need to do and how to navigate that space. So I actually wrapped a bow around this very ordinary Walmart journal and I gave it to her as a graduation present and she just broke down and sobbed. Um, so yeah, we do have conversations. I, I don't know that we've had too many conversations around death and dying. It's been mostly around making meaning, living your life. Because she's in that space. She's 24. She's just graduated um, with a master's degree from Columbia College. And so she's in that space of who am I? What am I here to do, etc. And I've always encouraged her to follow her dream. I've always said, don't make it about the money. Money will come, money will go. But if your heart is in what you're doing, you'll, you'll find a way, you'll have the energy, you will have the deep, deep satisfaction of knowing that you did the work you came here to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That sounds like a beautiful gift that you gave her. By the way, I think that's a lovely idea. Thank you. For, I feel like the thing that you were saying before about um, building the grief altar and giving yourself 15 minutes as a response to, you know, clients and questions that you've gotten about, you know, how do I make space for grief when, you know, I have a job and I have bills to pay and I have kids to take care of and all that kind of stuff. I feel like the same question could easily come up around this idea of life purpose where, you know, this sounds great and I want to be connected to this and I want to explore it, but you know, I have to do laundry. I have to pay bills. Like I have think, right? Like just normal adult life stuff. And mm -hmm. so I'm curious for you, what helps you to stay connected with your purpose and with these things and, you know, and these soul values that are, feel really important to you. Um, and maybe it's easier for you because you've made it so much of your life work, but, um, I'm, I'm sure you've worked with people who have been in that space of like, okay, I want to figure this out. I want to think about what's important to me. I want to live with more intention in that regard, but how to sort of do that amidst the just like general <laughs> responsibilities of living, mm. you know? Yeah, that's a great question. So I'm not uh, encouraging anyone to abandon your corporate jobs and embark on your spiritual quest. That's certainly not the way to do it. Um, 
But I think we need to be in touch with ourselves and ask ourselves, am I really enjoying what I'm doing on a day-to-day basis? Even if you're earning the six-figure income, ask yourself, are you having fun doing it? Are you doing it for the right reasons? Why are you doing what you're doing? And if the answer is, you know what? No, it pays the bills, but I'm really not having a fun time doing this job. I'm doing it because I need to pay the mortgage and put food on the table. Then you need to carve a certain amount of time during your week when you begin to think about fun stuff. What what lights you up? What are your passions? What did you used to do that you have forgotten? That's a question I ask my clients a lot. And they're like, wow, that's a really good question. Because that's true. You know, in our 20s, we did things for fun. And then as we got older and had more responsibilities, those things have fallen away from our lives. So can you reconnect with that person who was 18, who was 22? What was fun for her? And can you rediscover and bring back some of those passions? So if it was horses, I mean, can you go and and spend a weekend somewhere where you get to be with horses and you ride them or you you talk to them, you feed them, you you, you just have fun with horses? Not a big thing. If if you enjoyed painting and you haven't picked up a brush in years, can you just sign up for a three hour class somewhere and just reconnect with that dreamer part of you? That's such a big step in in beginning the process. So that's the first thing I would say, like slowly bring pieces of this passion back into your life. And if you have absolutely no clue what you're passionate about, like I don't even know that I have a dream. I don't know what I care about. Then go on a passion quest. Try different things. Come up with a list of five to six experiences that seem like fun. It could even be like, you know, I only eat the same kinds of food. I've never eaten Greek food or I've never eaten Indian food. This weekend, I'm going to be adventurous and try it. So it could be like just stepping out of that very constricting box you find yourself in. So make a list of five to six experiences that you can bring into your life that you think may be fun. I'm going to check them out. If I don't like it, check off the box. That's it. I'm never going back. But maybe out of six, you like two. And then you want to do something more with those. You want to explore them a little deeper. This is how you begin to you begin to reconnect with the part of you that is the dreamer. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a really good place to start. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think that's beautiful. I love that. Um, so before we start to wrap up, is there anything that we haven't covered or that hasn't come up yet that you wanted to make sure that we touch on, that we discuss? Um, I think you've done a fabulous job of like really touching on everything <laughs> that's important to me. So no, I really can't think of anything. Okay. Um, well, the way that we end these episodes are with some rapid fire questions, although, you know, the questions are quick, but your answers certainly don't have to be, but it's basically, um, this season, it's seven questions that, uh, the community has put forward that all eight guests of this season will be answering the same seven questions. If you are down to answer very random questions. <laughs> okay. Okay. All right. That have potentially nothing to do with what we just talked about, but <laughs> seven, seven questions for you. Um, so the first question is about money. When it comes to money, what's one thing that you purposefully don't spend much money on that's not that important to you? And then on the flip side, what's one thing that's a totally worthwhile splurge for you in your life? Mm, so things, what I don't buy too much of electronics, um, 
I, I'm not an electronics person. I buy what I need for my work and that's about it. But I would never spend any time in, or money in Best Buy. Um, about the splurge, a retreat, any kind of retreat that's spiritual, a writing retreat, um, that's something I would totally splurge on. Mm -hmm. Experiences. Yeah. I'm more an experience kind of girl. Yeah. What's something that you really love about yourself? I love my listening skills. I love that I'm a good listener. What was uh, the most recent shift or decision that you made that's had a big impact in your life? To open up to the next level of grief, grief healing work, um, I kind of had this something inside of me, I don't even know how to describe it, saying there's something new, there's something new, there's something new, but I don't know what that is. And so I had a reading, which I do at the end of every year with somebody. Um, and this woman who didn't know anything about me, didn't even know I did grief healing work. One of the first things she said was, I'm getting this feeling that you are meant to move into your next level. And I'm like, yes, what is it? And she said, I don't know, but you're being told that, you know, you have no clue what it is. And I said, I don't. And she said, but you have a choice. You can say yes or you can say no. Um, and if you say yes, the books will come, the, the teachers will show up, the experiences will show up, and absolutely they did. So that was, you know, um, intergenerational family trauma healing work. Mm -hmm, so, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, which you were talking about before. Mm -hmm. um, so looking back over your life, what's one decision that felt incredibly hard for you to make? Hmm. Incredibly hard for me to make. I'm going to be really facetious and say driving. I really did. Everything in me fought against it. <laughs> That's such an interesting answer. Yeah, because you mentioned that, that that was when you when you moved to the U.S., right? Right, right. Mm -hmm. And I was I was so bad at it. I had a an accident on my learner's permit. And I told my husband, I'm going back to India because living in the U.S. means I have to drive. <laughs> and I don't want to drive. <laughs> but yeah, that was probably the hardest thing for me to do because I don't have a good sense of direction. I still don't drive on the freeway. Uh, I just stick to the suburbs. Yeah. Um, so the next question is completely different, but if anything were possible, what's one of your big dreams or fantasies, something that you would love to have happen or something you'd love to experience? I would love to have, um, to experience, to create. Oh, okay. Number one, I would love to be on Oprah Super Soul Sunday. That, that's my biggest, biggest, biggest dream. Um, and somehow it's, it's coming true. I just don't know how. The next is I would love to create a world community of, of like-minded people, find people all over the world in every country who think alike and who, who can have conversations. That's a big dream, too. Yeah, those both sound wonderful. I hope yeah. that those both happen for you. <laughs> yeah. um, so the next question is about books, which, let's say, two or three books, any type of book, any genre, have had the biggest impact on you or that you recommend or reread most often? Um, definitely Eckhart Tolle's A New Earth. That was the first book that changed my life. Um, that was a big one. Wayne Dyer's um, The Shift. Um, I think it is From Ambition to Meaning is the subtitle of the book. That was a big one for me in terms of giving up a life of ambition and moving to a life of meaning. Um, the third one would have to be uh, Louise Hayes' You Can Heal Your Life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
yeah, I'm going to put links to all of these in the show notes. Um, so the last question, if you could leave our community, the listeners with one call to action, what would it be? Maybe a question to ask themselves or a small action to take? I just want everyone to know you are enough. Even if you're in pain, I just want you to know you are enough. You are loved. You are so enough. And if you feel like you're not enough, go inside and talk to your soul. Begin with the question, who am I? And the answers will come. Mm, that's beautiful. What's the best place for people to find you and say hi online? Do you have a favorite way to connect with new folks? Uh, my website is umagirish.com. I'm also on Facebook. Um, so that's facebook.com slash umarights. Um, I hang out on my business page a whole lot. So that's the best way to find me. Okay. I will put links to all of that in the show notes. Uma, thank you so much. Thank you, Nicole. This has been such a joy. And I have to say this is among the top three favorite conversations I've ever had. So thank you for this space. Oh, that makes me so happy. (laughs) (laughs) And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening and for being part of the Real Talk Radio family. Speaking of the Real Talk Radio family, I wanted to give a huge shout out to Adam Day, my producer and sound engineer. Adam created the music for this show, and he makes everything work and flow and sound way better than I ever could on my own. You can find him and his music, which is awesome, and his sound editing work at adamday.net. And as I said way back at the top of the episode, this is now a 100% listener-supported show. The show is made possible by awesome people like Janelle. Hi, Janelle. Hi, Nicole. We're going to do a fun little round of rapid fire questions so I can get to know some things about you. You ready? Absolutely. So my favorite question first, what are you totally obsessed with right now? So I am totally obsessed with experimenting with and testing eco-friendly lifestyles. Um, So I've recently been diving into like ocean conservation type stuff. um, And I feel like there's so many people out there trying to live more eco-friendly lifestyles, but it's overwhelming to just think about doing that overnight. <laughs> um, so I've been testing things here and there. And um, yeah, one, one of the things I'm trying now is like I have these cute little penguin dryer balls that are made of wool. So instead of using like the reusable dryer sheets, which are full of chemicals and again, it's like a single use product. Um, I'm using these cute little penguins. <laughs> so I'm I'm just obsessed with finding fun little ways to live more green. I love that. That's awesome. So on the other end of the spectrum, what's something that feels frustrating for you right now? Like one thing or maybe an area of your life that you're currently finding the most challenging? Yeah. So I think kind of in that same vein, I'm struggling with people um, not being honest about imperfections. Um, so as I've been trying to switch to these kinds of lifestyles, I see so many bloggers or people that I follow, um, you know, making it seem like it's so easy and and they portray these perfect lives on social media and things like that. And so it makes it difficult for people like me to try to take the plunge. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's kind of what I'm struggling with is expectations versus reality and and knowing that it's okay to mess up sometimes <laughs> as long as I'm working towards a goal. 
Yeah, I think that's so well said. This idea that, first of all, it doesn't have to be all or nothing. I think that's true with like any change and that it takes steps and that it's not always going to feel. I mean, I think this is true with everything. I think about it with sobriety. I think about it with marriage. I think about it with long distance hiking. Like it's really easy to make it look like, oh, this is just this like effortless, perfect thing. And like a lot of the times it's shit. (laughs) Yeah. And and making it seem like it's all or nothing also, I think, discourages a lot of people from even trying to begin with. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. I totally agree with that. What's something that a lot of people seem to care about that you just can't get into? Hmm. Okay. So I recently started reading the Game of Thrones book series and I just, I cannot get into it. And I know everyone's obsessed with the show and I started watching that a couple years ago. And for some reason, it's just it's not my thing. And I've heard so many people say, oh, but you just have to get to this. And it's just, I'm not getting there. (laughs) (laughs) That's okay. You don't have to like things that you don't like. Although I will say I am guilty of not with Game of Thrones, because I don't think that would be my thing at all, um, of doing that with Harry Potter. Like anytime I meet someone who's like, well, I like tried to get into the first book. And I'm like, no, I don't accept that. Like try harder. (laughs) Okay. So I've heard you talk about Harry Potter and I'm I experienced kind of something similar to you. I didn't read them growing up, but I read them about a year ago and I was totally obsessed with those books. Oh my God. So So I'm totally on that bandwagon. Awesome. I love it. Um, What's your secret weapon in your healthiest relationship? So whatever you think one of your healthiest relationships is, what's something that makes it that way? Yeah, I think my healthiest relationship right now is with my boyfriend. And I think the biggest thing is honesty. Um, in previous relationships, I've, I feel like I've shied away from expressing my true feelings, um, or, you know, not wanting to hurt someone's feelings by sharing my true feelings. Um, and in this relationship, I just feel like I can be totally honest. We both do. And we give each other the space, um, to express our feelings. And that just, it it feels really good. Mm -hmm. So the last question, sort of with that in mind, what's one specific thing that you wish that people were more open and honest about? I would say probably feelings. Um, I think, you know, so often they kind of get brushed over. Like I can think of conversations even with girlfriends that I've had where, you know, something will happen and you'll just kind of be like, okay, well, are we cool? Um, And gloss over things. And, and I don't know, I wish that people would just have more conversations about how they're feeling, even if that might make the person that they're telling feel a little bit uncomfortable Mm -hmm. because I think in the long run, it forms healthier, deeper relationships. Yeah, I love that. I totally agree. So you're a member of our Patreon support squad, which means that you are one of the people that listeners can thank for making this podcast possible since you make a reoccurring pledge that helps to fund the costs of producing the show each season, for which I am very grateful. And I would love for you to share why you decided to support the show and maybe what's your favorite thing about being in the Patreon community. Yeah. So my former boss actually um, was the one who turned me on to to your work. Um, he actually showed me a snippet of one of your emails that you had sent out um, with the joy cost pain quote. Um, so, so anyways, he sent me that email and then I started listening to the podcast. And what I loved about it is that every single episode, I felt like I took something away from, even if it was some someone that was being interviewed that I had absolutely nothing in common with, no common ground, no common life experiences. Um, I took something away, whether that was positivity, encouragement, just knowing that I wasn't alone. Um, So I loved the podcast and felt that I wanted to 
to support what you're doing because I think it's awesome. And I was super excited to get the email since I already knew how awesome they were going to be since I saw the small snippet of that one. Um, so yeah, uh, I it's it's been awesome for me and it's been an awesome way to kind of pull myself out of ruts and um, feel like I'm a part of this bigger community. Oh, that makes me so happy. Um, And something that I am going to start asking for in the outros, because I was telling you this before we started recording, um, I've had community members that have like wanted to meet each other through like hearing someone on the outros or listeners who hear someone. So will you share where you live and then maybe like your social media, like favorite social media handle in case people want to get in touch? Yeah, sure. So I live in Orange County, California, specifically in Irvine. Um, and I do have personal social media, but what I'm focusing on right now is actually my um, my business social media. So it's Clam and Clasp, um, C-L-A-M-A-N-D and then C-L-A-S-P. Um, so you can get in touch with me there. I love that. Um, And to everyone listening, if you love the podcast, if you want to help keep it going, if you want over 40 hours of bonus content, plus lots of fun opportunities and extras, just go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more for each eight episode season. I honestly can't tell you how much your support means to me, and it'll be so much fun to get to know you better after you've joined our community. Maybe we can even record a future outro together like this one and get to chat and hang out a bit. So until next time, here's a big virtual hug and a reminder that we're all just doing the best we can. And no matter what, we're in this together.